The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. First the trial, then the evidence. Maybe. Welcome to my weekly report for Thursday, January 23rd, 2020. Thank you for listening to this independent news, which appreciates your support through the donate button at buzzburbank.com. As the Senate wrestles with whether to allow new evidence in the trial of Donald Trump, new evidence continues to mount. Consider just the past week. Trump finally got an investigation out of Ukraine, but not the one he had so firmly requested. Ukrainian officials opened a criminal investigation into whether Trump associates surveilled and or planned to harm former U.S. Ambassador Marie Yovanovitch, and Ukraine's asked America's FBI to do the same. No longer quite as fearful that Trump would cut off their military aid, and with the charges now out in the open, Ukrainian officials saw the writing on the wall. While Republicans argue the president broke no laws worthy of impeachment and incorrectly argued that a crime must have been committed for a president to be impeached, this happened. The nonpartisan General Accounting Office, which keeps an eye on taxpayer money on behalf of Congress, reported that Trump broke the law when he withheld from Ukraine money legally designated for that purpose. Trump supporters claimed the GAO had no right to make such a declaration, but that is untrue. That Congressional Accounting Office is legally required to report such law-breaking when it finds it. More specifically, the GAO blamed the White House Budget Office under the direction of Budget Director Mick Mulvaney, who also serves as Trump's acting chief of staff. Clearly, Mulvaney and the Budget Office act at Trump's direction but remain subject to the law. The Republican argument that no laws had been broken by this president, the nonpartisan General Accounting Office, found that to be untrue. Not quite as credible as the GAO, but in total agreement with it, was a Russian-American who became a citizen here by way of Ukraine. Lev Parnas, once employed by the president's personal lawyer to put the squeeze on Ukraine, has throughout the week turned over his texts, voicemails, and calendars to both federal investigators and the House impeachment committees. President Trump knew exactly what was going on, said Parnas in his interview with Rachel Maddow last week, adding, he was aware of all my movements. I wouldn't do anything without the consent of Rudolph W. Giuliani or the president. Parnas is the second person to say on record they'd told high-ranking Ukrainian government officials the quid pro quo. They would get the military aid they need to fight off Russia and more if they just publicly announce an investigation into Joe Biden. And Lev Parnas says he watched as Trump told top advisor John DeStefano to fire Marie Yovanovitch after Trump had told Ukraine's president that the ambassador was bad news. Fire her, Parnas recalls, an angry Trump saying and adding, get rid of her. It was Parnas who revealed that Marie Yovanovitch was under surveillance at the direction of Trump donor Robert Hyde, whom he'd met in a bar in Trump's D.C. hotel. Parnas says he doesn't believe there were plans to actually harm Ms. Yovanovitch. He says Hyde's a big talker, a big joker, and a big drinker. But texts from Hyde include, They're willing to help if you'd like a price. Guess you can do anything in Ukraine with money. They'll let me know when she's on the move. The FBI dropped in on Hyde's Connecticut home and business on that revelation this week, even though no official investigation has yet been opened by either the Departments of Justice or State. No word yet on what, if anything, the FBI found in Hyde's house. Parnas says he doesn't think Ivanovich was a target for harm, and yet a friend at the State Department did call her in the middle of the night to urge her to get on the next flight back to the U.S., Still, Barnes comes off as a credible witness, and although he's looking to make his punishment lighter for the serious charges he faces, 
he was Giuliani's foot soldier, and Lev says he knew he was doing the president's bidding. As thugs and henchmen go, Lev Parnas is credible because, like a good FBI agent, he kept everything, every document. And he made it a point to have his picture taken with nearly every player in Trump world because he was smack in the middle of it. And perhaps as an insurance policy, he documented everything. When Trump tried to falsely claim this week he doesn't know Lev Parnas, Lev tweeted photos to disprove that. When Trump claimed he'd never spoken with Parnas, Lev tweeted out a video of the two of them talking. Trump had sung his familiar refrain of, I don't know him, just as he had said about ambassadors Gordon Sondland, Kurt Volker, and George Kent, just as he said about Pence aide Jennifer Williams and Army Colonel Alex Vindman, just as he has at various times distanced himself from his 2016 campaign manager Paul Manafort, his first national security advisor Mike Flynn, and his own personal lawyer Michael Cohen. Whatever Trump and Republicans throw at him, Lev Parnas has a photo or a document for that. Parnas believes he could be the Senate's best witness, but says of the Republicans, I think they're afraid of me. Trump's denied knowing campaign aide Carter Page and former foreign policy advisor George Papadopoulos. He's denied knowing FBI director James Comey and, for that matter, Vladimir Putin and Stormy Daniels. Now, this week, he doesn't know Lev Parnas, even though Parnas seems to know a lot about him. And in the past month, as Nancy Pelosi delayed transmitting the articles of impeachment to the Senate, we learned that Russia is now investigating the Ukrainian natural gas company that Trump wanted investigated to try to get alleged dirt on Joe Biden. We learned that Trump knew and apparently directed the campaign to pressure Ukraine into that investigation. In a newly released letter written by Rudy Giuliani, we learned he wanted to meet with Ukraine's president, quote, in my capacity as personal counsel to President Trump and with his knowledge and consent, end quote. Giuliani was on a domestic political errand, as Fiona Hill had put it in the House impeachment inquiry. We learned from new documents that then National Security Advisor John Bolton met with Trump face-to-face -to, -face to urge him to release Ukraine's money, saying, this is in America's interest. Bolton was told to stand down in a memo from a White House budget official that pointed out holding the money was, quote, a clear direction from POTUS. The president knew because the president ordered that illegal withholding of funds, and Bolton is willing to testify. Mulvaney and others, including Lev Parnas, would be pertinent witnesses, and there's a pile of new incriminating documents to go with it. And as all this new evidence piles up, the wrestling continues with whether to allow new evidence and new witnesses, with so much of it pouring out in the past week and the past month. Senate Republicans argue they shouldn't have to have either for a trial they say they didn't want in the first place. Republican senators argue it was the House's job, not theirs, to do the investigating. Never mind the White House stonewalling of evidence and witnesses, and never mind the flood of evidence in the past 30 days. In the words of Democratic Delaware Senator Chris Coons, trials have evidence. Cover-ups do not. In the past week, the crack expanded in the Republican stone wall against new witnesses and evidence. North Dakota's Kevin Kramer said he'd be surprised if there weren't witnesses called by both sides. Quoting Kramer, I'm certainly open to it. Maine Susan Collins continues to lead a coalition of Senate Republicans, and that coalition continues to grow. A number of Republicans, like Trump, want to call Hunter Biden and Adam Schiff to name two. They want witnesses not to clear Donald Trump, but to distract from the charges at hand and to impugn the impeachment. Republicans have no defense witnesses because they have no defense. Their case is to attack the impeachment and not to evaluate the facts and do impartial justice as they have sworn. 
Nearly 7 in 10 Americans want witnesses, including 48% of Republican voters, according to a new CNN poll. Moderate Republicans, moderate Democrats, and independent voters respond well to the words, let the process play out. The wrestling continues, but if witnesses appear, anything can happen. Televised testimony would be must-see TV in a battle for the hearts and minds of Americans. Things can change, and have changed, on a single testimony. If there are to be witnesses, Republicans, since they make the rules, would also call witnesses, of course, mostly witnesses having nothing to do with the charges upon which Trump stands trial. Democrats would likely suffer a few minor injuries, but witnesses would be very bad for the president and for the Republicans still so tightly attached to him. Democrats could portray a Republican witness as irrelevant with the words, I have no questions for this witness. But there are so many questions to be asked. What exactly was John Bolton describing as a drug deal? What did Gordon Sondland mean when he said everyone was in the loop? How often did Rudy Giuliani update Trump on the Ukraine pressure campaign, and was he really doing Trump's bidding there? Did Trump donor Robert Hyde really have Yovanovitch surveilled, as text messages indicate, and what was the end game of that? Was it Vladimir Putin who turned Trump against Ukraine by telling him that Ukraine had worked for Hillary Clinton in 2016? What did Trump say behind closed doors about that? What did White House lawyers say about that? There are questions, too, for Mick Mulvaney and his top advisor in the budget office, Robert Blair. Also in that office, political appointee Michael Duffy, who told the Pentagon to hold the Ukraine money and to keep that order closely held, as in, keep your mouths shut. Why does the name of Republican Congressman Devin Nunes keep coming up in the Ukraine effort and in phone records? And why does Nunes have so much trouble remembering these things? He knows who I am, says Parnas, pointing out that the two had met several times. Parnas says Nunes introduced him to his congressional aide, Derek Harvey, while Nunes served on the House Intelligence Committee that was investigating the Ukraine scandal. Quoting Parnas, I was in shock when I was watching the hearings and saw Nunes sitting up there. He knew what was happening, said Parnas. Witnesses like these couldn't be called during the House impeachment inquiry, either because the White House had blocked them or because no one knew they could be valuable witnesses. But now there are so many questions to be asked of so many witnesses. And Senate Republicans are still resisting new witnesses and new evidence, even as both pile up just outside the Senate chamber doors. Lindsey Graham tells us that Trump would like the trial to end nine working days from today, by February 4th or sooner. He says Trump's hoping to be acquitted in time for his State of the Union speech, in which Trump would address a joint session of Congress to tout what he sees as his achievements and to argue for his re-election and to hopefully claim exoneration from the Senate trial. Graham also says the sooner this is over, the better for the country. One by one, senators of both parties, after verbally swearing to do impartial justice, signed a leather-bound book in which they backed their verbal oath in writing. Chief Supreme Court Justice John Roberts had taken a nearly identical oath before that upon entering the chamber in his black robe to preside over the trial. Following the Martin Luther King holiday weekend, the trial began on Tuesday with most of the debate about the rules for the trial. The rules for the first stage of the trial, opening arguments, limited both sides to just 24 hours in session over a two-day period. That's much less time than was allotted in the trial of Bill Clinton, so it appeared Mitch McConnell had been lying for weeks, saying the rules would be just like the Clinton trial. 
24 hours in two days meant sessions that would run late, late into the night. Hearings start at 1 p.m. Eastern, and at 12 hours each day, they'd run at least until 1 a.m. and even later when you factor in breaks. House impeachment managers accused McConnell of trying to schedule the most important speeches and the most important moments of the trial after America's bedtime, at least in the eastern half of the country. His new nickname, Midnight Mitch, went viral. But as the rules were being debated Tuesday between the House manager and Trump's lawyers, changes began to appear in the rules McConnell was proposing. The changes were handwritten into the margins of the printed proposal that McConnell had sworn that morning were going to pass as written with no amendments. Under pressure from the public, the press, Democrats, and a number of his own Republicans, Mitch McConnell caved, at least on a couple of key points. The 24 hours of opening arguments would now be spread over three days, not two, cutting those 12-hour days back to eight hours. Also, in the Clinton trial, there were witnesses and documents before each side stated its case, but not under Mitch's original rules. The Clinton trial opened with 90,000 documents for a lie about sex. This one, about pressing a foreign government to tamper with our election, would, under McConnell's plan, open with zero documents. That, too, quietly changed during the Tuesday session as McConnell caved to the pressure again, a bit easier to do with Trump out of the country. McConnell, who had planned to require a vote to get the evidence the House had gathered in its impeachment inquiry, agreed to automatically allow the evidence instead to try to make it look a bit more like the Clinton trial of 21 years ago. McConnell's first set of rules were, as Adam Schiff described them, as if they had been designed by the president. But Trump was in Switzerland, and some of McConnell's Republican senators were in his face. McConnell was firm about the rules he'd announced Monday night, indicating they were as good as carved in stone. Until they weren't, after a barrage of criticism and the stinging social media nickname Midnight Mitch. From Tuesday forward, and for the duration of the trial, senators are to be in their seats at 1 p.m. Eastern Time every afternoon, six days a week, Monday through Saturday, until this is over. The historic trial began with the words, Hear ye, hear ye. Senators were warned to remain silent throughout the trial on penalty of imprisonment. They will be allowed to ask questions in writing and submit them to Chief Justice Roberts. They are not allowed to have with them electronic devices of any kind. No recording, no pictures, no texting, no distractions. Likewise, reporters are facing restrictions. Despite Republican claims of using the same impeachment rules as during the Clinton trial, the press is far more restricted this time, so coverage will be too. The first restriction appeared when still cameras would be banned from the ceremony of delivering the impeachment articles to the Senate. One video camera was allowed, but with no audio, no sound, nothing for radio reporters. Now that the trial has begun, the press is confined to pens. The pens are near the doors of the Senate chamber, but far enough away from some senators to avoid communicating with the people of their states by avoiding reporters' questions. Senators had already developed a way to dodge reporters, usually along the lines of, can't talk now, running late. The normal practice of reporters strolling with senators to ask questions won't be in play. The free press is confined to a pen. There are reporters inside the chamber, and they have always been banned from having electronics there. Normally, they'd handle that by dashing outside the chamber, grabbing their device, and transmitting the breaking news. But now, reporters have to pass through two security screenings instead of the usual one to get in and out of the chamber, making it much more difficult to publish breaking news as it happens. There may be more restrictions. There was talk of eliminating some press areas altogether. 
also unprecedented. The Republicans who wrote these press restrictions say they're for security. Journalist groups say they're crippling reporters. New Mexico Democrat Martin Heinrich voiced his extreme concern about the restrictions, saying, to place limitations on the press is to place limitations on the American people's ability to learn about the character and conduct of their elected leaders. These restrictions, he wrote, are antithetical to a free press, good governance, and the ability of the public to be fully informed about what we as elected leaders do in their name. Under the rules, 51 senators can turn off the TV cameras at any time for deliberations. Although senators are not allowed to speak during the trial while it's in session, they can say all they want in a closed session behind closed doors with the cameras off, and that would not be unusual. There were closed-door sessions in the impeachment trials of both Clinton and Andrew Johnson. But these closed-door sessions could last for hours. And hiding significant parts of the trial would be another way to keep the public from hearing some of the material most damaging to Trump. Likewise, closed-door sessions can be more productive than televised hearings because it means far less grandstanding by the senators and therefore better dialogue. But shutting out the public won't set well with most voters and would make them trust the process even less than they already do. Republicans like Texas's John Cornyn don't want to be accused of hiding something. I hope none of it is closed, he says. CNN reported that Trump spent the weekend around Mar-a-Lago asking friends, why are they doing this to me? Worried about his legacy and impeached for life, he told people he, quote, can't understand why he's being impeached. He told his Florida golf resort buddies he wanted a high-profile legal team that can sell his case on television, so he chose Fox News regulars Alan Dershowitz and Ken Starr. Starr relentlessly pursued the Clinton investigation right down to the semen-stained dress. Now, he's on the side of the defense. There's a videotape from 1999 on which Trump calls Starr a lunatic, a freak, crazy, wacko, and a disaster. He said Ken Starr was terrible in the Clinton impeachment trial. And yet, there he is, representing Trump, because TV. Trump wanted TV lawyers. That's how he'd hired Rudy. That's how he'd hired another personal attorney, Jay Sekulow, who was frequently on Trump's favorite channel, Fox News. For Trump to get a good lawyer, always turn to Fox News. Sekulow is also part of Trump's dream team. This is something that Trump's actually right about. The impeachment trial is a battle for public opinion. The Senate will do what the public tells it to. Right now, 51% of the country favors Trump's conviction and removal, and it wouldn't take much to tip that virtual tie to a majority. Alan Dershowitz had successfully defended two of America's most notorious names, Jeffrey Epstein and O.J. Simpson. High profile, just like Trump wanted, Trump is reportedly quite happy for now with the lawyers he'd chosen. Lead counsel Pat Cipollone is less likely pleased with the players he's been given to work with. And Dershowitz doesn't seem to be all in. He says he won't vote for Trump in 2020 and that if the Senate acquits Trump, he says that would, quote, produce results that make me unhappy as an individual. But Dershowitz counts himself as a Democrat who also wants the impeachment to fail. He says he cares about the Constitution mainly. Dershowitz says he was pressured into being one of the guys defending Trump. He'll do fine for Trump, already arguing that abuse of power is not an impeachable offense. The Constitution he says he cares so much about seems to prove him wrong. Team Trump also includes former Florida Attorney General Pam Bondi. She once pursued an investigation of Trump University but dropped it 
after Trump made a generous illegal contribution to her campaign using money from his phony charity, the now-defunct Trump Foundation. Starr, Dershowitz, and Bondi will be led by White House counsel Pat Cipollone, who's considered a good lawyer. These are the lawyers he has to work with because Trump's left so many lawyers unpaid, the president's had trouble finding good ones for the past three years. Unpaid lawyers and a reputation for being erratic and because he could never stop tweeting long enough to be a good client. But even Pat Cibolone is a problem for Democrats who say he is a material witness to the Ukraine scandal and they're demanding he disclose whatever he does know. Nevertheless, the Trump defense team that had taken so long to come together was finally assembled just this past weekend. It had to be because the Senate had given Team Trump until Saturday night to file its initial briefs in the case, which it did right after Democrats released theirs. After walking around Mar-a-Lago over the weekend pining for TV lawyers, Trump finally felt well-prepared for the trial. Just before the trial began, both sides presented pre-trial documents. The Democrats went first, releasing their argument that Trump should be removed from office on abuse of power and a cover-up, saying his conduct is, quote, the framer's worst nightmare. Democrats argued the Senate must use the impeachment remedy to remove Trump from office, quote, to safeguard the 2020 election, protect our constitutional government, and eliminate the threat the president poses to America's national security. Eliminate the threat, they told the Senate in their 111-page legal brief. Then came the response from Team Trump that the president denies each allegation categorically and unequivocally that the charges against Trump are the result of Democrats' quote, highly partisan and reckless obsession with removing the president. Trump's lawyers argue in their six-page brief that Article 1, abuse of power, quote, alleges no crime at all, let alone high crimes and misdemeanors, as required by the Constitution. Both the House prosecutors and the president's lawyers are claiming their allegiance to the Constitution. At just six pages, the Senate's initial brief did not attempt to show the president's innocence, but simply to condemn the impeachment, complete with political barbs. It accuses Democrats of trying to overturn the results of the 2016 presidential election. The House managers, meanwhile, argued the evidence against Trump is compelling and overwhelming, and their 111-page brief included the GAO's determination that the president had broken the law. They argued that the president's displayed a pattern of behavior from welcoming Russia's help in the 2016 election to demanding it of Ukraine for the 2020, and that that pattern poses an ongoing threat to future elections. Both sides are expected to stick with these strategies throughout the trial, but with important questions still not answered, anything can happen. No one knows how this ends. Don't let anyone tell you they do. On Monday, Trump's legal team released a more detailed response just in time for the noon deadline. In that response, they added another 110 pages and more political barbs calling the impeachment a charade. They argued that the charge against the president abused his power to get political dirt out of Ukraine by withholding military aid is a, quote, made-up theory. Again, defending the president not by proving the theory wrong, but instead by attacking the impeachment. Trump's lawyers again argued that to be impeached, Trump would have had to have broken a law, and they insist he did not. They argue he had the authority to do all the things for which he's being impeached. They called the impeachment an affront to the Constitution rather than a defense of it. They called the impeachment brazenly partisan and a rigged process. They say Democrats are opposed to calling Hunter Biden to protect his father's lead over Trump in the 2020 election polls. 
Trump's lawyers asked the Senate for a quick acquittal. Despite the rules changes, the first day of the trial, a debate over rules lasted until nearly 2 in the morning Eastern time. Over the course of that long day of semi-televised hearings, the House impeachment managers and Trump's lawyers spoke for and against 11 amendments to McConnell's rules. The amendments called for subpoenas for both documents and witnesses from the White House, the National Security Council, the State Department, and the Office of Management and Budget. The amendments were each proposed by Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, each one aimed at getting documents and witnesses at the start of the trial instead of maybe at the end, as McConnell's rules allow. The amendments were debated one by one, despite McConnell's 10 p.m. request that the rest of the amendments be bundled together. House Democrats refused that request, and the amendments continued. In the late night hours, tempers flared, and things got a bit personal. That led Chief Justice Roberts to admonish both sides to be more civil, to remember where they are and how serious this is. At first, many senators took notes. Soon, they were passing notes and passing candy. Some senators took catnaps during even the most passionate speeches. Despite the rule against electronic devices, some occupied themselves on the smart watches they'd worn into the chamber. In the end, just before 2 a.m., Chuck Schumer ran out of amendments, and the Senate voted, as it had on each amendment, along party lines, to approve McConnell's altered rules. In both parties and both houses of Congress, members almost always vote with their leadership at first, in this case, Mitch McConnell, as a show of unity. After that, they're free to go their own ways if they wish. But the vote had been taken. If there are to be witnesses and new evidence, they would come after the two sides had already stated their cases. Democrats only need four Republican votes to get that evidence and those witnesses, but there's growing indication they have as many as nine. Nobody knows. Stay tuned. Why did Democrats make it go on so long that first day? Why did they want each amendment fully debated individually? Why were they proposing amendments they knew would not pass? That long day seemed to provide Democrats with two things, getting Republicans on record as being against facts, witnesses, and a fair trial, and using their speaking time to recap the evidence gathered so far and through the use of video and graphics present both evidence and witness testimony. Democrats essentially got to call some of the witnesses they might never get to call by using video. They got to repeatedly make the case that a trial without witnesses and documents is not a trial. They repeated that when a judge conspires with the defendant to keep the prosecution from calling witnesses, that is not a fair trial. They got to remind the Senate that executive privilege and attorney-client privilege cannot legally be used to hide information about crime or official misconduct amid White House threats to try to block Bolton's testimony with executive privilege. And Democrats won another two days and got more primetime exposure of a trial that Trump and McConnell were trying to end so quickly. In their time, Trump's lawyers attacked the House impeachment. They also lied. White House counsel Pat Cibolone continued the false claim of secret hearings in the basement of the Capitol. Not even Mr. Schiff's Republican colleagues, said Cibolone, were allowed into the skiff. Both Republicans and Democrats were invited to those hearings, and in fact, many Republicans were in those hearings. House impeachment manager Adam Schiff responded, Now, I'm not going to suggest Mr. Cipollone would deliberately make a false statement, but he's mistaken. Every Republican on the investigating committees was allowed to participate in the depositions, and more than that, they got the same time we did. 
There are transcripts of those hearings to back up Schiff's claim. What Trump's lawyers did not do was offer evidence of their client's innocence. This did not go unnoticed by Chairman Schiff either. Quote, when you hear them attack the House managers, what you're really hearing is, we don't want to talk about the president's guilt. We don't want to talk about how ass backwards it is to have a trial and then ask for witnesses. And so we'll attack the House managers because maybe we can distract you for a moment from what's before you. Maybe if we attack the House managers, you'll think about them instead of thinking about the guilt of the president, end quote. House manager Jerry Nadler was more blunt, saying they lie and lie and lie and lie. The only one who should be embarrassed, replied Pat Cibolone, is you. And that was the exchange that led to the admonishment by Justice Roberts. Instead of a defense of the president, Cipollone was accusing the House of a sham impeachment with the lie that Republicans were kept out of the depositions. A lawyer, in this case the White House lawyer, acting as the president's lawyer, willfully or ignorantly lied to the chief justice of the United States Supreme Court. In fact, Trump's lawyers made at least three false claims during their first-day impeachment arguments. They lied when they said Democrats had held back the articles for 33 days. It was 28, not 33. And Jay Sekulow lied when he claimed the president was denied the ability to cross-examine witnesses in the Judiciary Committee hearings. Sekulow was also untruthful when he claimed the Constitution had therefore been violated. It wasn't. The constitutional rights of accused criminals apply in the courts, not in congressional proceedings. First, Committee Chairman Nadler had formally invited Trump to have a lawyer take part in the hearings, but Pat Cibolone back then declined the invitation, calling the process unfair. The president passed on his chance. Trump watched bits from the trial from Switzerland, where he attacked the impeachment and said he thought his lawyers had performed, quote, really good. Behind the scenes back in Washington, Democrats were discussing among themselves allowing testimony from the irrelevant distractions of Joe and or Hunter Biden in exchange for the testimony of eyewitness John Bolton and others. It was one witness and one piece of evidence that turned the nation and Republican senators against Richard Nixon. Besides, some Democrats figured, Hunter's testimony could very well backfire on Republicans. Despite the odds and risks, Democrats are determined to open the door to get that witness, be it Bolton or somebody else. But Chuck Schumer immediately struck down the idea of a witness trade, speaking to reporters during a break yesterday. Joe Biden says he won't be part of a trade. Adam Schiff says trials aren't trades for witnesses. Yesterday, the House impeachment managers began their first of three days, Wednesday through Friday, to really present their case. House manager Adam Schiff opened. Speaking for over two hours without a break, House impeachment manager Schiff outlined the entire Ukraine case as documented so far. He then recapped incidents of obstruction and began to struggle with his voice. After nearly two and a half hours of articulate, detailed, and passionate argument, Jerry Nadler and other impeachment managers took over. But it was Adam Schiff who returned in prime time to tell the senators and the viewing public that Trump was trying to cheat in the 2020 election. President Trump withheld hundreds of millions of dollars in military aid to a strategic partner at war with Russia to secure foreign help with his re-election, said Schiff, adding, in other words, to cheat. And he did it in a way that's being hailed as historic and as passionately and as articulately as anything we've seen in movies or television, much less real life. Two hours into Schiff's evening presentation, and at its most dramatic moment, at least a dozen senators violated the rules by walking out of the chamber. 
After even being warned of pain of imprisonment, others were simply out of their seats, pacing at the back of the room, while still others talked among themselves. Ted Cruz worked a crossword puzzle. On his way back from Switzerland, Trump set a new personal Twitter record, tweeting and retweeting over 142 times that day by midnight Eastern time. The President of the United States, in those tweets, called the chairman of the House Intelligence and Judiciary Committees, Adam Schiff and Jerry Nadler, sleazebags. Democrats continue their opening remarks this afternoon, and tomorrow, Republicans begin their three days of arguments on Saturday, wrapping up this coming Tuesday. In his speech last night, Adam Schiff said that if the Republican Senate acquits Trump, quote, Vladimir Putin would like nothing better. Now, let's say you have a friend who's pessimistic about the outcome of the Senate impeachment trial. I have Salon.com's Bob Seska to talk about what should happen next. Bob? Thanks, Buzz. It seems like ages ago when Bill Barr deliberately flummoxed the end of Robert Mueller's investigation, but shockingly, it was less than a year ago when all that went down. Before most Americans had a chance to objectively absorb the Mueller report, Trump's then-recently appointed attorney general chose to cherry-pick the investigation for details he thought would exculpate his boss, compiling it into an open letter that completely defanged Mueller's findings in one March afternoon. Consequently, Barr's spins circulated the globe thousands of times before Mueller's truth got its pants on. Barr provided enough time and misinformation to convince the public that the Trump-Russia scandal was a whole lot of nothing. Adding insult to injury, Barr and Mueller agreed that a sitting president can't be prosecuted. And later, when the Mueller report finally dropped, it dropped with a thud rather than the eruption of truth we hoped it would be, changing minds and starting a chain reaction that would lead to Trump's removal. None of that happened. It's probably not a coincidence that Trump's conspiracy to exploit foreign aid to Ukraine in order to cheat in the 2020 election began after all that. Trump had to have felt emboldened to let fly with his darkest instincts, shielded from real accountability when Barr delivered exactly what he had promised to Trump with regard to the Russia investigation. As we all know, Barr lobbied for the job based on a pledge to defend the president against prosecution. And now he's doing exactly that from atop his perch as the chief law enforcement officer in the nation. Trump got both his no collusion result as well as a loyal safety net. And Barr got another chance at sculpting the Justice Department to match his own nefarious vision. While, most importantly, he became a rock star among Trump's red hat cult. All told, Trump's Ukraine plot probably never would have happened were it not for the Barr-commandeered outcome of Trump-Russia. Indeed, Trump's obvious loyalty to Russia was one of the animating factors in the Ukraine plot, since the effort not only aimed to help Trump win re-election, but it would also help Russia to exonerate itself, blaming Ukraine for the 2016 hacking of the DNC instead. It's almost too clever for Trump, something more in keeping with a Putin idea. Nevertheless, imagine for a moment what Trump will do once the Senate Republicans acquit him at the conclusion of his impeachment trial. The Republican caucus is not only committing political suicide, but it's also offering Trump a free pass to become a full-fledged unitary executive, a totalitarian dictator who's no longer accountable to Congress, just as he's no longer accountable to the Justice Department. By the way, I know I'm supposed to remain optimistic, but for now, with the vast majority of evidence and testimony on the table... It appears unlikely there'll be 67 votes for removal. So let's assume for now that the Republicans will be dumb enough to acquit their guy. 
If he doesn't realize it already, it'll occur to the president soon enough after that final vote. The odds of another impeachment proceeding will be next to zero. And even if he were to step out on the Fifth Avenue and shoot a guy in the head, Nancy Pelosi would have few political options remaining, at least this year, when it comes to repeating the impeachment process from scratch. There's no precedent for such a move, a second impeachment, making an already impeachment-averse Speaker of the House even less inclined to engage in a second proceeding. I mean, sure, he could do something harrowing enough that even some Republicans start to scream for removal. I suspect, however, that given the November election, the method of accountability will be restricted to Election Day, which I suppose makes sense until we realize that both Trump Russia and Trump Ukraine were each plotted to help Trump win election and re-election, respectively. The point I'm trying to make here is that the next Trump crime, post-acquittal, will likely have something to do with making sure Election Day will deliver another Trump win. In other words, an emboldened, unleashed Donald Trump in the wake of a Senate acquittal will more likely than not try to cheat in the election again. And if he cheats in the election again, how the hell will he be legitimately held accountable? Indeed, it wouldn't shock many of us if Trump simply continued with the Ukraine plot, the same plot he's pursuing right now as his trial proceeds through the Senate. Already, even without pro-Trump foreign interference, Republicans have made it increasingly difficult for Democrats, specifically voters of color, to cast ballots due to voter suppression efforts, including purges, unnecessary voter ID laws, limited voting booths in heavily Democratic turnout districts, and so on. Couple all that with Russia's ongoing cyber attacks, now joined by who knows who else, with most of the world realizing that American voters are nauseatingly susceptible to social media manipulation. From there, add into the mix whatever shenanigans Trump might unleash. Just last week, for example, we learned that the Russian military successfully hacked Burisma, the Ukrainian energy company that employed Hunter Biden. It's safe to assume the information acquired in the hack will make its way to this year's version of WikiLeaks, not to mention Team Trump and its surrogates, to be distributed at will. And what'll happen when we learn Trump was handing out Burisma documents to Fox News, Breitbart, and the other members of the Red Hat Entertainment Complex in violation of myriad laws? Well, for now, for the remainder of the year, nothing will happen. No impeachment, no prosecution, nothing. That's not to say all of this is set in stone. I'm not pessimistic enough to declare that Trump's re-election is fait accompli. But the cover-up by Moscow Mitch and his rat bastard caucus are handing Trump a free pass to continue cheating. The best-case scenario is that enough American voters will turn out, overwhelming the vote and directly punishing Trump and McConnell with undisputed defeats in spite of their cheating. In fact, Trump's acquittal will make it even more imperative that sane Americans in every state should take matters into their own hands and make Trump pay for what he's done. Trump can't just lose. The loss has to hurt. It has to humiliate him so that he refuses to show his face in public ever again. This is no longer a choice. It's all down to us and our patriotic duty to Republican democracy. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thanks, Bob. Get more of Mr. Seska at Salon.com, his Patreon page, and Tuesdays and Thursdays on the Bob Seska Show at BobSeska.com. He'll have a fresh show this afternoon. I join Bob on his Tuesday shows. Donald Trump began the fourth year of his presidency this week, and that had the fact-checkers at the Washington Post updating their count of his false and misleading claims. 
That number has grown exponentially since the Post began the count to track his first 100 days in office. By popular demand, the Post has kept the feature going. He told nearly 2,000 lies in his first year and just under 6,000 lies in year two. But in this past year, the false and misleading claims totaled over 8,000. In other words, he spouted more untruths in this past year than he did in his first two years combined, 2,000 more than he'd spouted in those first two years combined. The count published earlier this week brings Trump's lies since taking oath to 16,241. His new average is 22 a day. Even a recent claim about the killing of Iran's top general was not true, that no Americans had been harmed in Iran's missile retaliation. As you may have heard, 11 soldiers were soon afterward reported to have endured traumatic brain injuries from the missile's explosions, concussions mostly. Now the Pentagon says additional personnel have been sent to the Army Medical Center in Germany. It won't give us a number. Washington Post fact-checkers have also been tracking the number of promises that Trump has made versus how many he's broken. Here, at the start of his fourth year, he's broken more promises than he's kept. Trump likes to boast about his victories and the promises he's kept. The Post finds he's only kept about 35% of his promises compared to the 43% he's broken and the 12% on which he compromised. Trump frames it differently, saying, quote, I've completed more promises than I've made. In December 2016, the Post published a list of the 280 promises that Trump had made on the campaign trail. Where did you get that list, demanded a White House official. We got it from the president, replied the fact-checkers. The cell phone of Washington Post owner Jeff Bezos has been hacked through a WhatsApp account owned by the Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, who was also suspected of ordering the killing of Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi. Bezos and the prince were having what seemed like a nice chat until the prince sent, unsolicited, a video file, an infected video file. The Saudis had recently purchased a spyware company. The infection gathered huge amounts of information from Bezos' phone in just a matter of hours on May 1st, 2018, just five months before the journalist was killed. The effects of this incident will be felt in Congress, on Wall Street, and in Silicon Valley. And the hacking may explain how the National Enquirer got hold of intimate details about Bezos' life, including text messages that cost him his marriage. In 2018, the prince was a friend of David Pecker, who was the tabloid's publisher at the time and who had been a very good friend to Donald Trump during the 2016 campaign. Trump and his son-in-law, Jared, remain in close contact with the prince. The coronavirus, the climate, another python falls, and iguanas fall from trees in the final segment after this. This newscast is free to you, but not free to make. If you'd like to contribute to this effort, please check on the PayPal donate button in the upper right at buzzburbank.com or on your phone just below the title, Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Some kind listeners schedule a monthly payment. And there's still a little Amazon button on my page. If you're shopping Amazon anyway, clicking through my website and bookmarking that Amazon page still helps. You may need to turn off your pop-up or ad blockers to see all the useful links on my page, but it is both safe and helpful. Whatever you do, whatever you've done, however you do it, thank you. The latest climate study out this week shows that our oceans are the warmest they have been in recorded history. Ocean temperature is the more reliable way to measure the warming of the planet because it does not fluctuate like the atmosphere. The readings are, like the atmosphere, taken around the world. 
and the oceans are where 90% of the Earth's warming occurs. And those warmer oceans produce stronger storms, melt polar caps and glaciers, and increase the risk of coral bleaching. Scientists say warmer seas could also lead to a breakdown in ocean currents. After some rain and hail and flooding, the fires continue to spread in Australia. At least 31 people have died in those fires, including now at least three American firefighters. Along with the grief and fear, there is anger in Australia, and it is mostly aimed at the government. It was the Australian government that had banned the clearing of brush around people's homes, and hundreds of homes have burned. It was the Australian government that initially ignored advice to call in foreign firefighting help. People are angry about the fires that have lasted for months now and about the sun being blacked out by smoke. And they're getting angrier about their nation's status as the world's number one exporter of coal. The Prime Minister has refused to budge on that, calling the coal industry vital to both jobs and tax revenue. Last year was the hottest year ever recorded in Australia. Our house is still on fire, said Greta Thunberg as she opened at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland for the second straight year. Your inaction, she said to the world leaders, is fueling the flames by the hour. Trump Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin told reporters Thunberg had no place speaking at an economic conference until after she graduates from college with an economics degree. Meanwhile, back in Washington, the Trump administration announced it will strip away environmental protections for streams, wetlands, and other bodies of water to the delight of corporate farms and real estate developers. Hoping to use the Republican assault on the Affordable Care Act as a 2020 campaign issue, Democrats asked the Supreme Court to fast-track the Republican lawsuit to kill Obamacare once and for all. That the Health Care Act survives at all is to the credit of lower courts that have upheld it. Democrats argue that this precarious status has made the insurance market unstable to the detriment of its customers. Democrats say it's urgent that the health care law be upheld once and for all. The latest worldwide health scare hit home this week as an American arrived back in Seattle after a trip to Wuhan, China. Wuhan is the epicenter from which a deadly new coronavirus has spread across parts of Asia and now here. It's in the same family as the coronaviruses SARS and MERS. The CDC appears to be all over this. Enhanced screening is in place at New York's JFK, L.A., and San Francisco airports. At Atlanta's Hartsfield, Jackson, and Chicago's O'Hare have been added. And now, all passengers from Wuhan are being routed through just those airports where the most thorough screenings are being conducted. Cases have now appeared in 11 countries. Back in China, about 20 people have died. Nearly 600 are down with pneumonia-like illnesses. The actual numbers may be higher. China says a coronavirus vaccine is in its early stages. Travel out of Wuhan has been shut down to try to stop the spread of the coronavirus. Even public transportation within Wuhan has come to a stop to try to stop the spread. Now two other cities in China have been shut down from travel, effectively quarantining tens of millions of people. And this morning, the Chinese government called off all major celebrations of the Chinese New Year. SpaceX blew up a rocket this week on purpose. It was the final test launch of the Crew Dragon space capsule, which is supposed to carry astronauts safely back to Earth, even if the rocket on which it is riding explodes somewhere between liftoff and orbit. The test worked. 
The rocket exploded just as SpaceX intended at 25 miles up, and the Crew Dragon parachuted back to the Earth's surface with half the G's of the Russian Soyuz capsule that American astronauts use today. Especially with international tensions high and for reasons of pride, NASA is eager to have its own capsule once again, even if the capsule comes from a contractor. SpaceX and Boeing are competing for the job. Boeing, meanwhile, says it can fix its Starliner capsule with almost no new hardware. It was a software malfunction that caused the Boeing capsule to fail to reach its orbit altitude. The company says its capsule returned with fewer burn marks than expected and can be refurbished in about eight months. Two years after sparking the Me Too movement, former Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein went on trial this week. It's actually a bit longer than two years since women started publicly accusing Weinstein of rape and sexual assault. Although he's been accused of having as many as 105 victims, the New York jury will decide his guilt in the case of two women. At age 67, six-time Oscar winner Harvey Weinstein faces life in prison. A founder and member of the comedy group Monty Python, Terry Jones, has died at age 77. Jones had been diagnosed with a rare form of dementia nearly four years ago. Jones directed or co-directed the Python classics The Holy Grail and The Life of Brian and was a hilarious performer, but also a brilliant writer who gave us many of our favorite Python catchphrases. He was also loved and respected as a children's author. He was a student of history and a fierce opponent of the Iraq War with his book, Terry Jones' War on the War on Terrorism. He's being remembered tearfully by his close friend and fellow Python, Michael Palin. Actress Minnie Driver tweeted about looking for a casting office in London and asking a man for directions. The man said it would be easier to take her there, walked with her telling stories, and then charming the casting director. That man, of course, was Terry Jones. Terry Jones will always be missed, but he will always be with us. The movie company that's been known for decades as 20th Century Fox will hereforth be named 20th Century Studios. Disney bought the movie part of Fox from Rupert Murdoch last year for well over $71 billion and seems eager to ditch the conservative publisher's name. Quoting an insider, the Fox name means Murdoch and that is toxic. The run-up to the Oscars continued this week with winners chosen by the members of the Actors and Producers Unions. The Screen Actors Guild, for the first time in history, chose a foreign language film for Best Ensemble Performance by a Cast in a Dramatic Motion Picture. That's as close as the SAG comes to choosing a Best Picture. The movie is Parasite, the story of corruption among rich and poor. The Crown got Best Ensemble for a TV drama. The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel got Best Cast for a Comedy. At the Producers Awards, 1917 won for Best Picture, a film not eligible in time for a SAG vote. Best TV Drama went to HBO's Succession. Fleabag won for Best TV Comedy. Both award ceremonies are precursors to the Oscars, which will be announced the night of Sunday, February 9th on ABC. This week's top movie is Will Smith's Bad Boys for Life. It sold over $59 million worth of tickets in its opening weekend. Robert Downey Jr.'s Doolittle which had ticket sales of $22 million, was second. 1917 was third. The award nominees Just Mercy and Little Women come in at numbers six and seven. For previews, theaters, showtimes, and tickets, please click through the Fandango link at buzzburbank.com. You'll see it better without a pop-up blocker, and it is safe for you to do so. This year's Grammys are Sunday, January 26th, and there's high drama as that date draws closer. 
Deborah Dugan was brought in as president and chief executive of the Recording Academy to replace its previous boss after criticism of awards discrimination against women. And then, just 10 days before this year's ceremony, Dugan was suspended after an investigation of misconduct, specifically bullying. Now, Dugan has fired back, filing a 44-page legal complaint accusing the company of sexual harassment and voting corruption. Specifically, Dugan says some winners were fixed behind the scenes to assure the artist got a performance in the show. These stories may or may not boost ratings for this year's Grammy Awards. In Portlandia, a young man waiting for a flight needed more space for his video game. So he plugged his PlayStation 4 into a computer screen normally used to display a map of the airport. Both sides remained calm as Portland Airport staff asked the young man to stop playing his game. Gamer to the core, he asked if he could finish the game first. They said no. He shut it down and moved on. Gamers, am I right? The 24-hour fitness center in suburban Salt Lake City isn't open 24 hours. Dan Hill didn't get the memo. So when he got out of the pool just after midnight, he found that everyone else was gone, the doors were locked, and the alarm system was armed. 24-hour fitness wasn't. Dan called his wife, who suggested he just make himself comfortable till morning. Unsatisfied, Dan called 911, explaining he hadn't wanted to trigger the alarm trying to get out and didn't want to get arrested for breaking in. While he waited for the cops, Dan gave his friends a video tour of the gym on Facebook. The manager says the hours changed in December and that the 24-hour club is now closed each night for four of those hours. Quoting the manager, we clearly did not do a good job. Roadshow. It's not the Waze app itself, but an ad in the Waze navigation app has been misdirecting drivers, actually casting them into the wilderness. People who think they're headed for the Borgata Casino in Atlantic City wind up deep inside New Jersey's Pine Barrens, famous as a burial ground for the murder victims of organized crime. Our highway spill of the week is piglets. A truck trying to bring home the future bacon overturned on I-35 in Des Moines, Iowa, and over 1,700 piglets tumbled out onto the roadway. The local Animal Rescue League helped police round up the piglets, which is ironic if you think about where the piglets are ultimately headed. Subaru is apologizing after the name of one of its new vehicles went viral. At the 2020 Singapore Motor Show, Subaru unveiled a new Forester model. The acronym for that model isn't what Subaru intended. Forester Ultimate Customized Kit. Subaru says it had nothing to do with the car's display name, blaming the distributor. The company says the car will not go on sale in the U.S. under that name. And now the weather. The annual snowball fight at Vancouver University was originally scheduled for a week ago today, but it had to be moved. This rescheduling is a big deal with some 3,000 participants each year. But this year's Vancouver University snowball fight had to be postponed because of a snowstorm. And finally, the National Weather Service has been warning Floridians to prepare to take cover from falling iguanas. They're not dead. They're resting. Kind of. They start falling out of trees when it gets down to 40 degrees or colder. It has been so cold this week in South Florida, iguanas that aren't supposed to be in Florida in the first place go into a kind of temporary stasis and fall out of the trees. 
often, usually surviving the fall, they snap out of it in the Florida sunshine the next day and go on doing whatever the invasive species does. They're supposed to only be found in Central and South America and the Caribbean. Humans brought them here. They're very popular pets in Florida. But female iguanas can lay nearly 80 eggs a year. So many um, get away, whereupon they damage sidewalks, seawalls, and landscaping plants. Getting beaned by a frozen iguana is not as much fun as it sounds. Some can weigh nearly 20 pounds. Males can grow up to five feet long. Falling iguanas in Florida happens nearly every winter because Florida. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and your support through the donate button at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network.